Hello everyone, my name is Wendy Myers of MyersDetox.com. Thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. I have a friend of mine, Dr. Vince Ann Adams on the show today, and she's gonna be talking about what makes our children sick and the rising epidemic of diseases in our children, uh, leaky gut and dysbiosis, what that has to do with it, and the issues of GMOs and pesticides in our children's food and why that's making them ill. It's a very, very good podcast today. And uh, I want to uh, take a minute to talk about, you know, children's diets. Um, so many people today are just feeding their children fast food, gluten, uh, dairy, and the, this food is uh, processed foods, genetically modified soybean oil, genetically modified corn, um, gluten that has uh, like no nutrition in it. And the food today has very, very little nutrition. So it's a, no wonder why our kids are so sick today. And this is just a warning call to anyone out there that is, you know, has a sick kid and is trying to get their child better. The diet is the, the starting point, the first place you need to look at in resolving your children's health issues or improving them. So really good podcast today on the show. And, you know, I've detoxed thousands of clients. Uh, you know, I've worked with people all over the world and I have a free download for all any of you guys that are wanting to learn about detoxification called the top 10 tips of detox like a pro checklist. Just go to detoxforenergy.com and download that totally free guide. I've distilled the top 10 tips that I've used with thousands of clients in detoxing them that you can just take home for free. Our guest today, uh, Dr. Adams, Dr. Vince Ann Adams, is a professor of medical anthropology. She graduated from the UC Berkeley US, UCSF program in medical anthropology in 1989, and she taught at Princeton University from 1992 until 2000, where she received tenure as associate professor. After coming to UC San Francisco in 2000, Dr. Adams ran the UCSF division of the, of the Joint Graduate Program in Medical Anthropology until 2012 and served as uh, interim chair in 2012 as well. She is currently vice chair of the department. Uh, she teaches core theory courses on the history and development of medical anthropology, reproductive health and developmental studies, and social studies of science, technology and medicine, and ethnographic field methods. And she wrote a book called What's Making Our Children Sick with Dr. Michelle Perro, who is a pediatrician. So definitely recommend checking that out. And we're gonna talk about it today on the show. Vince Ann, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Wanting to the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, why you're in the health field. So I am a medical anthropologist. I have a PhD in this field, which is a subfield of cultural anthropology. So I have been spending the last 30 years documenting all kinds of uh, of things in, in the, the sort of story of how politics and health and corporations um, and culture all get involved with either provisioning health or impeding health. 
Yes. Yeah. And so you wrote an amazing book uh, called What's Making Our Children Sick. And this is a really important topic because so many children today are on medications. One in, uh, it's one in six children are on, um, are on medications for hyperactivity and uh, just have, are having so many issues. They're being so medicated and are becoming more and more sick. Tell us why. Ah, so what we talk about in the book, uh, first of all, we do agree with you that there is an epidemic, we call it an epidemic of chronic morbidity in our children. Um, my my co-author, Michelle Perro, is an integrative pediatrician, and uh, I'm a medical anthropologist, and we uh, started talking about writing this book. Um, it was a great story about how it came about, which we can talk about later, but where she often said, you know, our kids are sicker than any generation before theirs. And um, that's true. They're sicker than we were as children. Um, so while we've taken care of a lot of the basic infectious diseases and, and uh, 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 you know, deadly childhood ailments, we also have grown a huge number of chronic morbid uh, morbidities that have to do with uh, all the systems of the body. So whether you're talking about allergies, asthma, eczemas, um, al you know, allergies to foods, whether you're talking about gastrointestinal problems, you know, kids who are nine years old and have ulcerative colitis, it's crazy. And then you go into the neurocognitive problems, the number of kids with some form of neurocognitive disease, whether it's autism spectrum disorder or, or all the way up to the mental health problems like bipolar, are really on the rise. So given that we have all these chronic problems, you know, the question comes up, well, what's going on now that, what, what, that wasn't going on before? And in the book, we talk about the possibility that there are a lot of reasons that kids are sick, you know, in addition to the normal childhood ailments. You know, our kids are exposed to a lot of toxic substances, endocrine disrupting chemicals that are in our environment, in the products we use in our households. Um, but we focus in on one, one pathway that seems to have been not so much overlooked, but under-investigated and under-explored. Um, and, and there are reasons that, they have been that th this area has been unexplored. And that area is food. <laughs> so we asked the question in the book, why has food not been more part of the medical agenda? Why is it the doctors don't talk much about food? Why is it they know very little about the quality of foods? Um, and not just from a dietitian perspective um, and a basic nutrition perspective, but what makes something more nutritious than another and what makes something very toxic as opposed to another, such as the problem of pesticides. And then when we look at the relationship, we also look at, you know, what is it about our food system that's changed over the last couple of generations? And the one thing that we hone in on in the book is the very, very controversial question of genetic modification of foods. And I know you've had other guests who've written about this and talk, have published about this, some scientists who've done work on it. So your, re, your listeners are probably familiar with some of the things that we say in the book around the onset of the uh, introduction of genetically modified foods into our, our agricultural system, the use of pesticides in relation to those, and the um, outcomes in relation to health. But what's interesting is that while there are a lot of books on the problems that genetic modification has caused to the agricultural industry in terms of weed resistance, uh, the problem for farmers, um, and the problem with the quality of the food itself, there aren't a lot of, of books. In fact, there's no real book that, that does quite what we do, which is connecting the dots between the medical 
integrative medical world that that is making sense of chronic problems in ways that directly point to food and then discussing what those ailments are, what the range of conditions are that lead to it, and then going into the very controversial sciences of this to talk again about what the evidence is. Yeah, and when you talk about pesticides, what does that term include exactly? Like, what do you mean by industrial food? And can you go into some of the, the details to what changes have occurred in our modern, our modern food supply? Yeah, so in about the mid-1990s, well, first of all, you have to go back to the post-DDT era, and there was this shift in um, the big agrochemical companies to trying to really make use of the warfare chemicals um, and to create home markets for them. So, you know, initially DDT was used and Agent Orange was used and all these other things. And in the wake of resisting those, you know, the Rachel Carson era to try to get rid of a lot of those really toxic substances, there was an effort at the agrochemical companies to try to cultivate um, better pesticides. When I say pesticides, I mean both herbicides and insecticides. So herbicides kill plants and weeds, um, insect kill insect pests. So one of the products that was early on um, discovered by Monsanto um, was a product which you're very familiar with called glyphosate, which is a chelator, a metal chelator, and it was seen to be very effective in killing weeds as a broad-spectrum, non-selective herbicide. So it was turned into a big herbicide in the era in the 1960s. Uh, I can't remember the first years that it was used, but throughout the 60s and 70s it was used. And in the late 70s, um, this one agrochemical company, Monsanto, hired um, an insect uh, um, endocrinologist who specialized in figuring out how to... Um, turn the new technologies of recombinant DNA into things that could be used in the plant world, in the agricultural world. So that is two kinds of products that emerged out of that era that eventually came on the market in the 1960s, in the 1990s. The first was a way of modifying plants so that they wouldn't die from the spraying of um, glyphosate-based herbicides, the most popular of which is Roundup, which most of your guests know about. Um, the other was to create a modification in plants that would enable them to actually become pesticides, that is, insecticides in their own right, so that any bug that that was um, uh, so that their insect pests would die upon eating the plant. So those are the two kinds of modifications that we focus on in the book. One is the roundup ready crops, which, Change, again, changes the crop so that it can withstand the spraying of toxic pesticides. And the second is the turning of the crop itself into an insecticide. So originally, I mean, it's kind of an interesting story. Originally, when glyphosate uh, Roundup-ready plants were introduced, the assumption at a lot of these companies was that glyphosate was not uh, going to be harmful to humans because the human cells don't have the enzymatic pathway that the plants do. Of course, we now know that our human body is made up uh, largely of microbes. So we have a ratio of something like one to one if you're talking about nucleated cells to one to ten if you're talking about non-nucleated cells um, of human cells in relation to microbes that exist and especially in our gut. And our gut microbiome is incredibly important to our health for all kinds of reasons. So now that we know that our microbes in our body are a lot like plants and that they actually are impacted by things like glyphosate, there's this need, I think, to, to sort of revise the science and, and look anew at these problems. So that's one way. 
the the other uh, insecticide, the bee, the use of uh, a genetic modification to turn the plant itself into an insecticide. Of course, the scientists thought that that also wouldn't be harmful to humans because the human gut is much more acidic than the insect gut. But we now know that the enzyme, the protein that gets put into those plants to make them insecticides actually is preactivated. And so the question of how much that activated chemical, that activated protein is impacting humans um, is still something that needs to be uh, explored. Now, we have a lot of research from the animal world. Scientists have done research in the animal world that says that these things are harmful. There's plenty of evidence out there to show that they are harmful. And there's a lot of evidence that says they're not. Um, and we focus on the literature that says there is harm. Yes. <laughs> but we don't have any real studies of these foods on humans. Those, pass, those products pass through the regulatory process without any studies on humans. Yeah, I and mean, that's just unbelievable to me. I mean, and I think it's really a testament to why we're seeing so many people that are sick today, so many children that are sick today, um, because we don't really know what the effects are of, of consuming these pesticides. But I mean, there are a number of studies that have been done, uh, but uh, there's lots of people claiming, oh, it's correlation, not causation, and, right. um, and all that BS. <laughs> so, right. well, it is an interesting story. I mean, we do know that some pesticides are toxic. We have plenty of information about those, the atrazines, the chlorpyrifos, these things we know are neurotoxins. There are plenty of great researchers looking at these and looking at the effects on especially uh, farming communities and um, uh, a migrant worker communities. Like, it's clear that there are health effects from those. And those you know, there's just a constant battle to try to get them banned from use um, and from the areas where children are, for instance. But the genetic modification issue has been really, really the sort of, um, you know, it's it's like the last un, un, underexplored territory. And a lot of people who do research on toxic pesticides don't touch the GM issue. They, they're too afraid of it. And, you know, there's a huge amount of controversy about those products. Um, and I, I've come to believe that a lot of the reason uh, for this kind of resistance to take on the GM debate comes from the scientists themselves, in part because recombinant DNA technologies or, you know, genetic modification technologies are widely used in the sciences for very good purposes. Biomedicine uses this technology all the time to do things to make, you know, products and uh, to do research on animals in ways that are incredibly profound and important to, you know, the march of modern medicine. And there's a sense in which the rally against GMO is heard as a rally to get rid of all GMOs rather than to just really narrowly, and this is what we do in the book, we try to hone in on this one little piece of the story about how it has changed our food and how that is is one of the pieces of, of evidence that we need to connect to these increases in chronic disorders among children. So, And there is enough evidence there to do that. And so that's why we did it. That's why we put it in the book. Yeah, and we know that glyphosate, it's a, it's a pesticide. It kills bugs. It's killing our gut bugs. And it's killing the healthy bacteria in our guts. And that can lead to leaky gut. So let's talk a little bit about leaky gut and uh, why this is a problem and it's affecting children's health. 
So, um, and I'm, I'm going to try to channel my colleague, Michelle Perrault, who's mm-hmm. the integrative pediatrician, who's really much more the expert on this part of the story than I am. But, uh, you know, we did write the book. And so I'm familiar with what's going on. And what we talk about in the book are two problems. One is, is this problem of what's called dysbiosis, which is probably familiar to many of your listeners. Again, it's this problem of having an unhealthy balance of bad bacteria to good bacteria in the gut. Now, we know that um, you know one of the causes of having dysbiosis is taking too many antibiotics. That's a well-known fact in the medical community. Well, a lot of people don't know, but glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is actually a patented antibiotic. Now, we don't have enough literature to say that is what's causing dysbiosis in human guts, but we have to start thinking about that as a possibility and looking at that. Um, the pathways by which glyphosate is probably impacting the gut are many, and, and, and you know Stephanie Seneff, who you've interviewed, is really good at mapping out some of these. The work is controversial. Michael Antonio, uh, King's College in London, has been really good at mapping this out. There's a long list of, of researchers you can look at and read about in the book. So dysbiosis is one problem. When you have dysbiosis, you have a problem of unhealthy gut bacteria, and this impacts your digestion. One of the disorders that can be aroused, or the theory goes, one of the disorders that can come about from chronic dysbiosis is the problem of leaky gut. Now, leaky gut has, um, again, it's a controversial uh, diagnosis. Um, Some medical professionals will say it doesn't exist. Others will say it's definitely real. The The person we rely on for this is a physician at Harvard named Alessio Fasano, who's been looking at the problem of celiac disease for many years. And what he argues is that while celiac really only affects a very small percentage of the population and usually is tied to, and it's always tied to a genetic cause, there is something called gluten sensitivity, which is emerging now um, more commonly. And it produces symptoms that are very much like celiac for people. So celiac is a problem when, that when you're, the lining of your gut is, um, uh, is, for people who have celiac disease, they have a genetic predisposition to overproduce a protein that bonds with the lining of the epith- uh, part of the epithelium so that it holds open little gaps in the wall of the intestine so that more, ing- more things flow through to the bloodstream than should. Um, and with, again, with a celiac, it's this genetic predisposition to overproduce something called zonulin that is the problem. What he says is that when you have a compromised gut, you have raw patches, you have some other impact on the epithelial layer, you can have this condition where the gluten does the same thing to people, where it allows too much to get into the bloodstream. And the argument is that when there's all this stuff flowing into the bloodstream that doesn't need to be there, your immune system is triggered. And when your immune system is triggered chronically over long periods of time, you can start developing these problems, possibly even autoimmune problems. But you have a constant state of inflammation, and this sets the body up for a whole bunch of things going wrong, including when these things get to the brain, and the brain gets inflamed. Um, so a lot of – it's not like we're trying to say there's one theory – the cause of all these problems, these, you know, we talk about a lot of patient cases, cases in the book, you know, the, the kid who has chronic eczema over 90% of his body and the doctor says, that's a minor case, don't worry about it, use more steroids. And the mother says, no, I, my, you know, we want to get to the root cause. We have story after story of parents who were so frustrated with not being able to get to the root cause of their kids' problems. You know, the, the, the kid with 
can't eat anything, allergic, has an allergic reaction to every food that they eat, the child with ulcerative colitis at nine years old, I mean, that's an incredible problem, an incredible, you know, and this is the kid who was on antibiotics for the first two years of his life, didn't develop a microbiome, now has a compromised gut and is having a hard time digesting anything. Um, and then a lot of stories about kids with neurocognitive problems um, who, you know, for one reason or another, probably had a problem with their gut and then had other things happen to them that triggered, you know, a, a problem in the brain as well. So that's our book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so with all these scientific advances in technology, I mean, one would think that our children would be healthier than previous generations. So, so how is that not true? What, what's an important thing for that people need to consider? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's important to remember that we do have medical advances that are profound and important. I mean, I work at a medical institution that's amazing. I mean, they can do transplants, they are going to cure cancer, they're going to figure out how to get in there and, you know, change those genes in ways that are kind of, you know, I mean, it's amazing how much has come out of our modern medical system. But we do in the book talk about how the emphasis on pharmaceutically driven medicine where we now mostly diagnose by treating, you know, they figure out what's wrong by giving a medicine and seeing if it works, where every single problem that's presented is offered a medical solution, even if it's just a Band-Aid instead of getting at the root cause, um, you know, where pharmaceutical companies are known to, you know, they want everyone over the age of 40 to have at least 10 drugs that they're dependent on, right? So there's this push toward a pharmaceutical medicine that has been very good and very rewarding and very effective, but it's also missing the boat on a lot of chronic problems. So we're very good with acute problems. We're very good with surgeries and accidents and, you know, trauma and other things, but we're, you know, and molecular medicine is just amazing, but we've missed the boat on the preventive end of things, on the holistic end of things. And the model that we are talking about in the book for a kind of medicine that could pay attention to the, something as basic as food. You know, we eat it three times a day. As Michelle always says, why wouldn't we think of it as the, the first line of offense and defense in terms of our health? You know, it's the first probable source of problems and the first probable solution to problems. And believe me, I spent many years working on Tibetan medicine. I've, that's been my main life's work. And Tibetan doctors get this right away. Food is the first and last thing that they go to for treatment. So, um, you know, along with other medicines if needed. Um, so, you know, we need to pay attention to food and we talk about food focused medicine as being something that we need to pay attention to. And we also talk about a kind of medicine that moves away from pharmaceuticals to thinking about the whole ecosystem that we live in. So we call it eco medicine, which is this idea that others have talked about as well, that, you know, you can only your gut health is only, you're only as healthy as your gut is healthy and your gut is only as healthy as the soil that your food comes from is healthy. So if we're destroying our soil through the use of agrochemicals that are requiring us to use artificial fertilizers and chemical, chemically toxic fertilizers, chemical seeds that have been modified to become like poisons and to be grown with things that are harsh chemicals that are toxic to our body, then we have depleted the basis upon which our health grows, basically. So we talk about the need to think about this as an ecosystem where we need to live symbiotically with the soil. You know, not new information for you or your listeners, but we put it together in the book in a way that we think, you know, will help parents 
who, especially moms, we have a whole chapter devoted to what we call the warrior moms who are out there, you know, taking care of their kids' health up against huge resistance from the communities that they live in oftentimes from even from within their family members. Um, we, you know, nod to them and say, well, let's pay attention to them. Let's support them. They can buy this book and give it to their doctor. They can buy this book and give it to their friends. Um, but we also, you know, wrote the book as, you know, a part of an academic community myself. I was writing it in part to try to reach out to my medical colleagues and say, you know, let's, let's reopen the box and think about this again. Let's, let's take a second look at this and not, not throw the critique uh, of GM out with the bathwater. Yes. Yeah. So what models of health and disease will lead us out of this mess? I mean, what opportunities are there for change or, or activism even on a larger societal level? Well, two different things. I mean, we talk in the book about kind of three levels. One is what you can do in the home. You know, Michelle's very good at talking about what, you know, what can be done, you know, cutting out certain things like gluten and dairy right away, figuring out what, you know, I watched her in practice. And I, I as part of my method, I do sort of the ethnographic method. So I went in and I, I worked, I, I followed her, I shattered her around in her clinic and met with her patients. And um, we talk about, you know, the way that she diagnoses is kind of different from most doctors. I mean, she does all of these tests of urine, blood, looking for toxicities in the blood, looking for toxicities in the, you know, toxic chemicals in the urine and blood, but also looking for sensitivities to food, which is not something that most doctors do. And then focusing on eliminating those things that kids seem to be sensitive to and eliminating the toxics from the environment and then rebuilding a healthy gut microbiome. And of course, using the notion of dysbiosis and leaky gut are two key ingredients in that process. Um, uh, then we also in the book talk about needing to make change on a societal level. And, and here's where, you know, we really do think, you know, activism is needed. Um, we need the scientists to get on board. I call them the reluctant constituencies. Um, and so, yeah, we need to think about what can be done at a societal level because these are problems that, you know, we, we, it's, it's organic food is not something that's really mainstream in the U.S. It's mainstream in a few wealthy pockets of the U.S. And those are the lucky people who can have access to organic foods that aren't uh, genetically modified. But, you know, there's a lot of political resistance to this. And there are huge swaths of food deserts in the country where the organic food is just not available. So we like to th talk about it as a real public health crisis. It's not it's not um, the fact that we don't have good food and, and our and our children across the country are eating foods that are making them sick is leading to major health problems, you know, chronic morbidities that are, you know, it's it's compromising a whole generation. And um so we do need we need the kind of work that you're doing. You know, we need activism. We need people to pay attention to it. But we also need the scientists to get on board. We need them to be in there doing the research and changing the conversation at the national level and in the offices of the NIH. We really do. Do you talk about vaccines at all in the book? Well, only very delicately. We did encounter um, patients, you know, mothers of kids who did talk about that as possible causes for of uh, you know, what they were seeing with their kids' cognitive decline. Of course, there's a large rhetoric about it in, aut in relation to autism. But, you know, we don't take it on. I, we just don't have – it's not that – the book isn't about that, and there's a – it would take too much work to go into it and open it up and really, you know, diagnose. What I will say is that Michelle has dealt with a lot of uh, kids with, with autism spectrum disorder, and I interviewed them, and they talked about how much better their kids got 
when they changed their diet mm. and followed the protocols that she was uh, advocating to, to make their guts healthy again. So getting off of you know GM foods, getting onto organic really did help them in a lot of ways, but also eliminating the things that weren't working for them. So we do talk about autism, but we don't, um, you know, there's all, it's just such a controversial issue, the vaccine issue. And, you know, the possibility of connecting the relationship between a compromised gut and overload from vaccines given too many, too early, you know, too, uh, too close together is not something that's really we could establish without writing a whole nother book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a big can of worms. <laughs> I'm just yeah. curious. I was just it curious. And that's I actually, all. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I mean, I work in a country, and Michelle and I weren't quite on the same page with this. I used it a lot of work in countries where vaccines weren't available. And I, I mean, I'm an advocate of vaccines. I think we need vaccines. It's a huge public health uh, tool. We just, I would definitely be interested in moving the conversation on vaccines forward around you know, how much we really need and how to space them properly and how to make sure a kid isn't immunodeficient before they get them. Yes. And I think that, you know, we've shut down the conversation on it because everyone's called an anti-vaxxer and, you know, that's really a shame. So tell us where okay. we can find the book. Uh, so the book is available on Amazon. It's called What's Making Our Children Sick. Uh, they can read more about us at the Chelsea Green website, which is Chelsea Green is our publisher. And, um, you know, it's in, uh, it's in bookstores, local bookstores, Barnes and Noble is carrying it and, uh, most of the major chains have it. So, and if they aren't, you can go order it through the bookstore if you're a bookstore supporter, which I love, but you know, Amazon's also great. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And then you can, you can, you can reach Michelle and I through information on the website, our contact information. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Wendy. And everyone, you can learn more about me, Wendy Myers, at MyersDetox.com, where I open up a conversation about how to detox heavy metals. Very important topic for children as well. Um, we get a lot of toxins in our food, a lot of heavy metals in our foods and in our supplements as well. And we need to learn how to detox them from our body. So you can go to MyersDetox.com to learn more about that. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Mm -hmm.